Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If you're wondering how a major pandemic will upend politics, the economy, maybe the world order as we know it, consider this moment. This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. How about we all? Uh, President Obama, are you listening? That was February of 2009 when Rick Santelli, who covers the Chicago bond market for CNBC, became enraged about an Obama administration program called the Homeowners Affordability and Stability Program, which was meant to prevent millions of Americans from being foreclosed on. We're thinking of having a Chicago tea party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. What are you dumping in, what are you dumping in this time? It was a moment that crystallized brewing anger about the 2008 financial crisis, about bailouts, and about the incoming administration. And it resulted in an incredibly powerful political force, the Tea Party. Two and a half years after Santilli's outburst, there was another moment worth taking note of. Occupy Wall Street showcased anger on the left about inequality and the power and excesses of governments and big corporations. Occupy took over a park near Wall Street for two months in the fall of 2011, marking, kind of like the Tea Party, a deep frustration with a financial system that seemed unfair and that, statistics showed, had been growing increasingly unequal for decades. I mean, we knew that global inequality was bad and getting worse and leading to a lot of anti-establishment sentiment in the U.S. and Europe and democracies around the world. That's Ian Bremmer, a political scientist who runs Eurasia Group, which assesses economic and political risk. And he says, if you thought you'd seen economically dislocating events like the crash that gave rise to Occupy Wall Street, to the Tea Party, maybe to Brexit, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Coronavirus took a lot of things that we knew were going on and we knew were troubling and intensified and sped them up. And one of those things that got sped up is inequality. Coronavirus is speeding that up dramatically uh, in the context of an economic recession that is massive and will displace so many workers and members of the middle class. But there are other phenomena that Bremer argues have also been put on fast forward by the pandemic, like our increasingly tense relationship with China. We're decoupling from each other in the technology space. Well, that's now intensifying dramatically, um, both in terms of the lack of trust, the level of confrontation, and the decoupling as it moves broader into the supply chain. We talk about medical supplies and pharmaceuticals and even broad manufacturing. And Europe's slow unraveling may now go a little faster. North versus South and East and mutualization of debt and, and, and how that possibly works and the anti-European or the Eurosceptic sentiment for those that aren't Germany uh, or the Netherlands speeding up. Then there's the power of Silicon Valley in our lives. The role that technology companies have in our society, the displacement of the non-digital, um, the, the erosion of our privacy. Bremer says the effect of this pandemic, it 
it's going to be enormous, and it'll stretch far beyond health. It'll affect our politics and the politics of other countries. It'll affect the distribution of money and power. And it will take events like the creation of the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, and it'll make them seem like faint foreshadowings of something much, much bigger. It's not that we got the trends wrong. The trends were very much the trends to focus on. But suddenly we have this extraordinary crisis, and it's really going to make these things far more urgent for us to, uh, to focus on and respond to. So over the next hour, a tour of some of those trends and how coronavirus will affect them, what countries might rise and fall, where the money will flow and who will grab it, which leaders might be winners and which might not. But before we get too far into this, a word of warning. If you want to understand where we're headed, brace yourself. I mean, it's certainly not a good news story. Right? I mean, you look at a lot of crises out there, you say, who are the winners, who are the losers? Uh, th there are not real winners, at least in, when you talk about countries or you talk about society. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to be facing a much more challenging global environment coming out of this crisis eventually, you know, in, let's say, three years' time, as we can start to talk about what a new normal might be. Uh, than we all were coming in. And, that, and that's going to be hard medicine for a lot of people that have lived and grown through globalization, which generally there was displacement, but it generally meant more and better in so many big global trends for everyone. Uh, this is a very different environment. When you talk about it's going to take two or three years to get through this, is that you know, you feeling like, yeah, vaccine coming up soon, that's that's happy talk, or is that this recession's going to drag on and on? What, what makes you say two or three years it's going to take us to get through this? I'm pretty optimistic about a vaccine uh, on the basis of people that know a hell of a lot more than me, okay. uh, that, that in some time in 2021, we'll have one that works. Okay. Uh, I mean, how well it works is an open question, but certainly much better than the kind of immunity that you'd get from antibodies and having already had the disease. Once you have it at some point in 2021, um, you got to produce a lot of it. You've got to distribute mm -hmm. it all over the world and you've got to educate people suitably to take it. Um, and uh, those things will take time too. And, and only once you've done all of those things can you then truly say, now the global economy, given all of this disruption, can function at whatever new state it's going to be in. So I, I think that process where you still have to socially distance and, you know, the even if the governments get we get to the point where the governments are going to reopen. I don't mean just a little reopening. I mean, fully reopening. But fully reopening from a governance perspective is very different from all the corporations are saying we're going back to steady state status quo anti functioning. Um, they're not doing that until we have a vaccine that's distributed. Um, and it also is very different from saying you're going to have consumers behave in the same way, taking non-essential trips, buying non-essential things. That, that's also going to take much longer to come back. I mean, the idea that without a vaccine that you're going to go to a crowded restaurant or a nightclub or, I mean, we even, we already have um, the um, Japanese uh, Olympic Committee saying that unless a vaccine has been distributed, they're not sure that they would be able to host the Olympics in the summer of 2021 in over a year's time. So, I mean, I, I think we have to understand that as much as the uh, peak 
of coronavirus cases and deaths in the developed world has come to us over the course of just a few months, the peak on the other side going downwards is going to take an awful lot longer, both following the virus and then following the economic response and behaviors that come on the back of the virus. But you seem to think that there's not going to be a substantial slice of the population that at some point is like, I'm done with this, I'm going to a bar, um, but rather that fear is going to, you know, reign for quite a long time to come. I, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think it's black or white like that. I think it's going to be much more nuanced. Uh, I think there'll be some people that will say, I'm willing to go. I think there'll be other people that will have already had the disease. And even though the science isn't quite there for an immunity passport that says, we know you can't get this disease again, it's still pretty clear that those antibodies mean something and provide a level of protection that even if you were to get the disease again, it wouldn't be in as uh, critical a form. I think a lot of people that um, have had the disease and know they had the disease, have been tested, um, will start to behave in ways that seem more normal. But that's not everybody. So right, again, right. There's, a, there's just such a big difference between um, we're completely locked down and I'm going to take my family in on an economy flight to go to Disneyland. I, I mean, th those are two polar opposites and we're not getting back to what we didn't even think of as normal economic activity i mean all of us if you think about it, we go back to what life was like at the beginning of the year and all of the things that we would do without thinking about it getting on a subway in urban life going to a bar having a quick drink going to a baseball game, getting on a plane and going on a vacation, all of these things that are not required to our day-to-day -day life, we can live without them. I mean, even for people in the knowledge economy, going to the workplace every day, we're finding out that these things are not essential activities, but they matter to right. the economy, right? right? Uh, there is absolutely no way that until we have a vaccine, we will be close to what the status quo ante was, the thoughtless, normal, status quo ante. That is absolutely not going to be back in anything recognizable until we have a vaccine that works and is distributed. Do you think that uh, America coming out of the period of time that you're talking about where things are much quieter, there's a, a kind of cloud over the world and over finances, does America get stronger coming out of that time? Is it a lot weaker? Just give me a sense of where you see us. Well, we're certainly weaker than we were because we mm -hmm. will have a lot more unemployed people. Um, we'll have a whole bunch of companies that have gone bankrupt, um, small businesses that won't be able to last. Uh, and uh, we will have uh, shaken uh, the belief of a lot of Americans that the United States really operates as the exceptional, indispensable superpower. Um, but to be clear, um, when I look at every other major economy in the world, I mean, okay, maybe not New Zealand, right? But major economies around the world are all going to be weaker on the back of this. So then you ask, okay, well, if we're all weaker, how does the United States look compared to those other countries? And this is interesting because compared to China, you'd say they've probably picked up a little. Um, their economy, keep in mind, is basically back up to normal speed 
on the supply chain side at a time when the Americans and Europeans are still shut down. And they've got a surveillance state. They had the ability to quarantine. We don't believe their case numbers at all, but we certainly do believe with the satellite imagery and traffic data and, and the fact that our companies are able to run on the ground in China, we believe that you know they're probably not gonna contract this year, that their total econo economy is probably gonna be about flat. Maybe you'll get 1% growth, while the Americans and the Europeans will contract. So compared to the United States, China will pick up, they'll be a little more powerful, and they'll have a little more influence over some of the poorest countries that are most dependent on, on China, um, that really need their supply chain, need their technology, all of that kind of stuff. But then you look at the United States vis-a-vis -vis our allies around the world, the Europeans that were in weaker economic shape coming into this crisis and are gonna get hit a lot harder. Um, look at it in terms of technology. I mean, we know right now that the only reason that the global economy is functioning reasonably well at all is because of all of the digital economy, because of the tech firms. Well, we dominate that. I mean, us and the Chinese. Europeans don't have those companies. But, but I mean, six months ago, we had the Europeans saying, we need to regulate these companies. We need our privacy. You had Elizabeth Warren saying, we got to break these companies up. No one's saying that now. We need these companies so that we can get back to running again. We need geotracing. We need the apps on our phones saying who is and who isn't safe. These companies are going to become much more important to the functioning global economy, and we, the Americans, have them. So that makes us stronger. There are going to be financial crises that come from the developing world. The American banks are in much better shape than the European banks are. Um, the global energy crisis that we see right now is because the Americans have much more price power, and we're the largest producer in the world, uh, not the Middle East, not Russia. OPEC doesn't matter. So when I think about the United States compared to other countries in the world that are not China, I see the role of the US dollar, I see the role of the American corporate sector, I see the influence that we have actually increasing. And, and that's an important point because it means that even if Biden becomes president, there's not as strong of a case that we need to listen to what our allies want. There's more of a case saying we got to focus at home. We got to get our own economy in order. We've got to take care of the average Americans. And I think you're going to see more unilateralism, not less, going forward hmm. from the United States over the coming years. That's a dangerous thing, of course, for, for the world, um, but maybe not so dangerous in the eyes of the average American. I want to get back to Biden and, and Trump, but um, let me ask you about, uh, you're talking about Europe. Is there any possibility in your mind that Germany, which, you know, amazingly, right at this moment, has a, sci a former scientist leading them, Angela Merkel, um, and has really tried to be out front with testing. They're making their own testing kits because they're such a sort of powerhouse in, in terms of uh, precision manufacturing. Um, do they come out as a leader? It, it, besides the U.S. and China, is there some other sort of hidden, uh, you know, leader here? Well, there are a lot of leaders. They're just not very big. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, South Korea, uh, you know, we had parliamentary elections in South Korea and uh, you had President Moon Jae-in with his party uh, getting a supermajority in parliament because he's been seen as doing such an effective job in flattening the curve early, in quarantining yeah. and contact tracing and doing the testing that the Americans just were not able to do. And so you, if you're an American, you have to look at South Korea. I mean, the Chinese lied to us 
They, they, they covered up the crisis. That's why that was the original sin. But they lied to the South Koreans, too. They lied to the Germans, too. We all knew at the same mm. time that we've got a problem. H how could our country do so badly compared to these other countries like South Korea and Germany? So, you know, th there definitely are other countries that are doing well. Germany is certainly the country you'd point to that is the largest that has been the most effective. I mean, you know, New Zealand is great, but it's tiny. Um, and and uh, on the one hand, I would say that, you know, Merkel's popularity is up to 80 percent right now. They've gotten they've done twice as much testing per capita as the Americans. Um, she speaks in very clear terms. She uses science. She explains the expertise that she has. She doesn't panic people, but she doesn't give them happy talk and gloss it over. She's been very effective. But I want to be very clear. She's been very effective for Germans. She's not been very effective for Americans or for Asians or mm -hmm. either, even for other Europeans, frankly. There's been very little coordination of health care um, across Europe. I mean, the Italians and Spaniards failed in Europe while Merkel was there as chancellor because the EU isn't really about collective health care. And as we look forward, I have no doubt that the Italians and Spaniards will be allowed to take on much more debt so that they can get themselves through this very hard coming year. But after that, they're going to be massively indebted, underproductive. And are, are the Germans going to offer to mutualize that debt so that there's a possibility that the Southern Europeans can grow again? I don't see that happening. Yeah, so yeah. frankly, you do have this coming existential question of whether the Eurozone can last. And, and if that's what the Europeans are dealing with, I have a hard time saying that the Germans are taking extraordinary leadership. Hmm. One question about the Chinese, which is, as you said, you know, uh, they uh, covered things up at the beginning. That's clear. And I wonder, uh, so there's sort of two parts of it. One is um, to what degree, like, uh, will they pay for uh being the outbreak, the center of the outbreak, and not initially telling the truth. Um, and on the other hand, uh, we've seen in recent weeks China really come to countries' aid, and when they need personal protective equipment or test kits or whatever. So they've also really tried to, in this kind of humanitarian way, help a lot of countries, especially poor countries. How do you balance those things in your mind? Well, um, I, I would say that both are overstated. Um, the idea that the Chinese will be forced to pay when their medical supply chain is absolutely critical, not just mm -hmm. to the, the poorer countries in the world, but even to the United States. I mean, you know, I, I'm talking to CEOs all day long who are desperate to get masks for their employees from China. And uh, we, we're not suddenly going to move all that production to the United States. We'll move some. But we're still going to be dependent on the Chinese. And for all of Trump beating on China, he also is reluctant to pull out of the phase one trade deal because he doesn't want tariffs on the very goods that American workers and voters um, are, are needing to pay for when they're being very stressed themselves in the election period. So the ability of the Chinese to hit back, given the continued integration of our economies, if we decide that we're going to, quote, make them pay, um, I, I think limits just how far we're going to go in Cold War direction. Uh, so I, I take a little bit of exception with that portrayal. On the other side, I mean, the Chinese have done a fantastic job in, in communications and PR 
over all of the stuff that they're shipping to countries on the medical equipment side. Um, of course, a lot of what they're shipping, it turns out they're selling and they're not providing as humanitarian aid. A lot of the humanitarian aid they're providing turns out to be not all that much. Some of what they've shipped doesn't work and has to get sent back. And we've seen yeah, that from true. Italy and Spain and others. And when it comes to who's going to actually really help the developing world that really needs economic support. I mean, the Chinese could do a lot more than they've done historically. And when I talk to the heads of the major international institutions, they say the Chinese are absent from those conversations. They are not stepping up. So, so I, I think that to the extent that China benefits, they largely benefit because they have shown that they can quarantine, they can surveil, they can get their economy back up and running fast. So it's their own ability to lead by example. Historically, when you were talking to the Chinese about their system, about their soft power, and whether or not it was attractive for other countries to move in that direction, it was closed versus open. And you know, there aren't that many countries in the world that really want closed versus open. But now the Chinese can say, oh, it's efficient. It's strategic. Yeah. Right. We can and, lock down 10 million yeah, people if we need that's to. That's right. And I mean, I, I can't look the Japanese, the Canadians, the Americans. That is that is not a model that will appeal to us. But there are a lot of uh, weaker democracies around the world, a lot of emerging markets around the world that are looking at China today and saying, maybe that's not such a bad model for us, especially when we see the kind of disenfranchisement in the United States, especially when we're, sure, we're not even sure what America stands for anymore. I mean, do they really stand for democracy? Is America really a well-regulated, representative democracy and free market system? Really? Really? Or, or, or is it all kind of shades of the same, but the Chinese are more effective? Right. And and, hmm. and have a, and the Chinese have a kind of system we're more likely to be able to put in place easily as a poor country. I, I think that's a discussion that is harder. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Ian Bremmer. He's the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, more about how our own democracy has functioned, what that says about the politics of the future in an election year, of course, and how money is about to reshape the world yet again. And we want to hear how you see the global landscape changing because of COVID-19. Recently, we asked how you saw the economy shifting because of the pandemic. One thoughtful comment came from Joan Mora, the parent of a college freshman, who noted that the shift to online learning to finish the school year is going to demonstrate to colleges that this model can be sustained. She argued that many colleges would be forced to downsize, especially in the face of huge unemployment numbers, and that such downsizing would result in a wave of faculty and staff layoffs. We always want to hear your view. You can reach us by emailing us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also go to our website. It's innovationhub.org, and you can click on the About tab. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. On March 11th, our government took a step that felt, to some, like it went too far. Many Americans are trying to get out, with airlines like Delta and United 
announcing they will start to reduce flights from Europe. Yeah, we got scared. The travel ban comes with Europe now the epicenter of the pandemic. Trump announces that we're not going to allow non-citizens, non-permanent residents from Europe to come to the U.S. anymore. Perfectly understandable thing for him to do. But instead of coordinating that policy with our allies in Europe, he just announces it at a press conference. Ian Bremmer is the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. The European leaders find out about it on TV. The next morning, they condemn, the EU condemns the United States for cutting off transit. I mean, can you imagine in 2008 financial crisis, the Europeans condemning the Americans for doing something? It's, it's, it's inconceivable. Bremer advises business leaders and others around the world on geopolitical risks. And he says not only is the world shifting in response to the coronavirus pandemic, but its view of America is shifting as well. Over the course of decades, America has served as a guide, as a convener during many global crises. Now, not so much. And the world has noticed. I mean, there's just no U.S. leadership. Remember, we put the G20 together. It didn't exist mm. before the 2008 financial crisis. We organized it at the head of state level because we wanted coordination. This time around, the Saudis, our allies, were chairing the G20. They wanted to organize a meeting for over a week. Trump was telling Mohammed bin Salman, no, I don't even want to have a meeting because he doesn't like these multilateral formats. And that's insane. So when I talk to people around the world, they're, they're deeply upset, distressed about just how absent the Americans are in terms of global leadership. I mean, in terms of the domestic response, that's more of a political issue. The United States, obviously, you mentioned that the Germans, you know, were making tests and those tests were effective. The Americans don't use the WHO tests. We didn't use the, uh, we used our own tests. They weren't working. And then we didn't go to use the German tests, which we could have done. That was a big mistake in my view. And, and that made us look bad. Uh, the worst we looked, in my view, domestically, was um, when we told all these Americans to come back from Europe, they came back to these airports and we didn't have TSA to process them. So you had, without masks, thousands and thousands of Americans, many yes, who I'm yes. sure ended up catching the virus, stuck in O'Hare Airport and others. I mean, that, was, that, made, that did not feel like a, a superpower. That, that felt like a developing country. That was deeply unacceptable. I hold our leadership accountable for that. That's not okay. And that looked really bad internationally. But, but I look at what Mnuchin and Pelosi were able to do in a few days to get a stimulus relief program, 10% of the US GDP, that affected pretty much every part of the economy. And, and yeah, there's waste, but you need that. You need fast. You don't need a lot of politicization. It didn't get politicized. It just got done. That was really good. And I look at, I look at uh, the head of the Fed, Powell, uh, who I think has done a very effective job um, in terms of getting the kind of credit um, into the markets that we need, banking system working really well, um, markets have rallied uh, on the back of that. I think that's been very effective. So, I mean, I think if we're being honest and we want to rate the American response in a holistic way, which means both the pandemic and the economic aspects of this massive recession, you'd say the American response has been middling. It's been better on some, it's been worse on others. If you rate American response globally and say, where is American leadership? You'd rate us abysmally. It's just absent. Well, you know, 
you were talking at the beginning about sort of these fault lines that already existed before the pandemic and what that things have been exacerbated. And I think about the defunding of the World Health Organization from the American side. And you think back to the idea of America first, right? This was already an idea that we are not really an international player and don't really want to be, perhaps. And and this is another opportunity to express that. You can put it in terms of America first. The problem with putting it in terms of America first is it allows you to blame Trump. And if you blame Trump, it also allows you to believe that if we just had a different president, we wouldn't have this problem. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I put this in terms of the G0 world, not the G7, not the G20, the G0, an absence of global leadership. And I wrote about that uh, 10 years ago. I mean, w well before Trump was remotely a possibility, he might have been lampooned on The Simpsons, but uh, he, he, nobody, nobody seriously right, thought right. he was going to be president. And, um, but, but that's when we saw that there were already structural reasons, it, growing inequality, lots of immigration, but people in America not being taken care of at home, and wars, unwinnable wars in Iraq and Afghanistan fought on the backs of those same Americans, disenfranchised. You saw Europe getting weaker. You saw much more polarization inequality inside Europe. You saw the beginnings of the Brexit movement, which of course eventually led to the UK leaving the EU. Uh, the transatlantic relationship getting weaker as a consequence. You saw the Russians in decline and angry at the United States and the West and willing to be risk acceptant to undermine us and delegitimize us, including in the 2016 election, but not limited to that. And then you saw China uh, growing slowly but surely over the last 30 years and not aligning with American and Western values and standards and institutions, but instead building alternative competitive institutions. And I would argue that all of those things are what led to Trump and are what led to the absence of U.S. leadership globally. And we would have seen that even if a different president had been in place in the age of coronavirus. It is truly unfortunate that in a G0 world, we happen to have the biggest crisis since World War II. That is a really unfortunate coincidence. And on top of that, it is unfortunate that we have the least capable president in generations also facing an imminent election campaign. I mean, the, the, the coincidences are truly, yeah. truly problematic, but I would focus more on the structural. So, as you say, that election is right, right over the horizon. And if you're thinking about a, uh, a crisis that is going to extend a year, two, three years, clearly that will encompass the election. Uh, President Trump has not done particularly well, especially compared with other leaders, either of other countries or even people like uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. Uh, when you look at his approval rating since this crisis started, um, to you, does does what's happening say to you, mm, it's a lot more likely we're looking at a President Biden uh, come 2021? Unclear. Um, maybe a little more likely, but not a lot more likely. For me right now, it's close to a coin flip. Um, certainly heading into a massive recession is better for Biden than the incumbent. Having said that, social distancing in November, which is going to be happening, is better for Trump than for Biden. Uh, you know, he, Biden has a larger base. They are less enthusiastic. Trump has a narrower base. They are rabidly enthusiastic, which means that fewer people voting is good for Trump. And I also think that makes it more likely 
that uh, Republicans with influence over swing states will try very hard to make it harder for people to vote. Numbers of polling stations, voting from home regulations, all of that kind of stuff. So the potential that we have an election outcome, an election process that is seen as delegitimized by a lot of Americans, I think, is growing. And, and that's before we talk about Russian intervention, before we talk about efforts to have political invest investigations against Biden and his son. All of that is going to get very, very ugly. But leaving all of that aside, I think it's close to a coin flip right now. We're going to take our last break here, and we're going to come back for a few more minutes with Ian Bremmer. He is the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. On our website, you can find Ian's risk assessments for the year from the fraying of the U.S.-China relationship to, as we just talked about, uh, questions about the legitimacy and fairness surrounding our own November elections. The link is at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. In 2014, a book hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And frankly, it seemed like an unlikely winner. Its author definitely was not your ordinary writer of bestsellers. You know, by, by the way, I should say the book is very readable, and I'm sorry that it's so big that it can be read by anyone. And what it will... Thomas Piketty is an economist at both the London and Paris schools of economics. And he had analyzed hundreds of years of data on wealth distribution and inequality, and then produced a book called Capital in the 21st Century. It wasn't exactly a breezy read at 696 pages, translated from the French, but still. It sold well over a million copies, in large part because it picked up on a trend that lots of people saw around them. I mean, th this is a virus that is disproportionately hurting the poor uh, and the middle class. Ian Bremmer is a political scientist who runs Eurasia Group, which advises business leaders and other power players around the world. He argues that the pandemic unfolding around us has taken some of these big trends, like the one that Piketty described in his book, and supercharged them. The wealthy, for example, seem to have had the upper hand ever since the moment that shutdowns began across the country. Their ability to segregate themselves away from the dangers of this virus, pretty great. Uh, I mean, if you're working in the knowledge economy, you can work from home and you can do so pretty comfortably. That's the top 10% of the population in terms of earning and growth. Those are your globalizers. That inequity has prompted folks like Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to make remarks like this. Others have suggested a minimum income for uh, a guaranteed income for people. Is that worthy of attention now? Perhaps so. Certainly without some major structural change to the economy, when we do get up and running again, Bremer says, those globalizers will again be the winners. And everyone else will find themselves in an even more inhospitable world. Full-time employment, in my view, coming out of this crisis will be lower there will be um, less need for labor attached to capital, which means we have to change the way we think about the social safety net or these people will be further disenfranchised. 
We had enormous levels of inequality in the United States and elsewhere, even after a massive bull market last year. Uh, now you're going to face the worst recession of our lifetimes. You think it's going to get easier for these people? It's going to get much harder. So uh, that, that is, that's clearly a danger that is not yet being addressed. And the gap is going to get bigger? The gap is going to get bigger. And it's one thing to give Americans a $1,200 check and to help them out with unemployment. But we're not talking about three months, six months. Again, we're talking a minimum of two to three years and then a new normal. And, and I don't know that our leaders in Congress are yet prepared for the kind of indebtedness that will be required, the kind of budgets that will be required, the kind of hard choices that will be required, budgetary decisions to allow for that kind of support. You know, pull me back if I'm being hyperbolic here, but after the 2008 financial crisis, we saw like the rise of the Tea Party. We saw a certain degree of revolt and instability because people felt like uh, they weren't being listened to and they didn't feel included and they felt like they were being passed over. I feel like you're describing something on a much different level, like things were unequal going in. There's going to be unequal health outcomes, unequal financial outcomes. And the gap, if we thought that was big, get ready for a bigger gap. Does that worry you in terms of um, stability of the government of this country? No, no. It worries me in terms of the the kind of country we live in and how good I feel about it. Um, I mean, okay. You know, William Gibson has this wonderful quote, the author, um, that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And, and we look around the world and see that inequality can be shockingly great in some places in the world and sustainable. People have been saying for decades that Israel, Palestine, if they didn't do a two state solution, I remember reading all of these op-eds by Tom Friedman that it was going to be the end of Israel if they didn't have a two-state solution. That's just not true. I mean, Israel, look at coronavirus right now. They're one of the strongest getting through this. Um, And, I mean, incredible capacity to monitor who does and doesn't have the virus and get people health care that need it and all the rest. They've got a a great um, advanced industrial democracy, rule of law, independent judiciary, um, educational system, you name it, free press, as long as you're not Palestinian in the occupied territories. And then you go right across the border and you look at Gaza, 50% unemployment, no prospects of meaningful education or a job, and yet completely sustainable from the perspective of Israel. Why? Well, because they don't need Palestinian labor. They've walled them off, both physical walls and, and sensors underneath the ground, They've got this Iron Dome air system, that missile defense system that can knock down missiles that come in. And they've got extraordinary surveillance from their technology to be able to stop anyone that could be a radical trying to come across their borders. Um, Well, one thing that we know is there are going to be a lot more intrusive technologies surveilling us to get out of this crisis. And that's also going to provide the ability for governments, if they wish, to ensure sustainability of higher levels of inequality. Now, I don't want to live in a system like that, but clearly, if we don't redress these problems, if we respond to it in the same way we responded to the Occupy Wall Street movement that basically went away in a year and we ignored them, then that probably means 
um, much more surveillance. It means much less liberty, much less personal freedom for significant pieces of the population. We need to recognize that, you know, as much as I love my country, for most of the history of the United States, being a representative democracy didn't mean representative of the whole population. We had slaves for quite a long time. Uh, you know, initially, the only people that could vote were white male landowners. You know, we finally, uh, you know, the, the uh, whatever it was, 100 years ago, allowed women to vote. Um, but, you know, and then after World War II, we, we brought a lot more of the population truly into the economy and into the political franchise because we needed the labor. We needed the labor. Well, what happens in the next five, 10 years in the United States if we don't need the labor? We could become much more progressive and we could make capitalism much more humane and we could redistribute a lot more. Or we could become a lot less representative and revert back to a lot fewer people that actually are part of the political franchise. I think both of those are real options available for the United States and our governance. While this is all happening in the U.S., just give me a, a, a sketch of what's happening, how a pandemic runs through the developing world. I think all this time about like, keep six feet away from people, which I, I hear all the time. I see it out, uh, out you know, when I uh, like go to the grocery store and stuff. Um, there are large swaths of Rio and New Delhi where there's, there's no way. P people are in very close quarters. There's no way people are keeping six feet away from each other. I mean, people have to go get water. I mean, they, they, there's a, a, a different kind of imperative and a different kind of reality. What happens in the developing world? Well, New York City population is just over 8 million. Um, yes. 20%, 21% of the population um, we have seen in recent studies has antibodies, which means has gotten the disease. Okay, and that, that is an incredibly wealthy city that has the ability, education, and governance to socially distance. So it is fairly obvious that even before you talk about slums in, in Mumbai or favelas in Rio de Janeiro, that everybody is going to get this thing in the developing world. Everybody's going to get it. The vast majority will be asymptomatic. So they'll get it, and we won't even know that they got it. Um, the populations are younger, which means that even as people get it and are symptomatic, most of them aren't going to die, and they're not going to have that serious symptoms. Plus, the economic impact of trying to shut down these economies it's, it's hard to accomplish because a lot of the economy is informal, so it doesn't respond to formal governance shutdown. Um, but even if you could do it, I mean, you know, people are living closer to subsistence. You're talking about a lot more people dying just by shutting down the economy than you would be by letting um, the, the, the disease blow through the population. So I think the most likely outcome in the developing world is until a vaccine is made and is distributed, is that everybody gets it, a fair number of people die, the economies are pretty open, but we are not traveling there. And that's gonna be a lot, it's gonna be very disruptive. They're gonna lose the tourism, they're gonna lose the remittances. I mean, it's very important in these emerging market countries, they need to be able to send 
you know, the people the, to the United States and other countries. They act as nannies and they work in agriculture and they work in other services, restaurants and the rest. And a lot that's a meaningful piece of GDP for a lot of countries around the world. Well, I mean, if, if they're not able to screen their populations, those people are not coming to the wealthy world. And that means they're not going to get that cash. So uh, I, I think it's a very mixed story about what ends up happening. The poorest countries, interestingly, in the world may be the least hit. The absolute poorest countries, because they're very, very young, the economies are very informal, and the people are used to this kind of depredation. Um, and so, I mean, you know, you add on 50,000 people dead in the DRC in a year, but otherwise, the economy functions kind of the way it does, and they're not very dependent on the rest of the world anyway, and they export some you know, basic commodities that people want to buy. I mean, it's going to hurt them, but it's going to be a lot less than middle-income economies like Turkey um, or, or like Brazil. I, I think that of the developing world, the ones I'd be most worried about are the ones that are going to have massive financial crises on the back of the economies that really do shut and they can't handle it. And the populations need the access internationally and they can't get it. And, and that lasts for years. That's where I would be more worried. Well, we've already seen stories of migrant workers, millions around the world who either couldn't get home, had to walk home in places like India. And we're, and we're facing not real. I mean, yes, they're facing coronavirus, but first they're facing starvation. I mean, like the dislocation in their lives was so enormous uh, that really the first thing on their mind was food rather than what's on our mind. Again, a reason why you wouldn't want them to shut down their economies in the near term and right. you wouldn't want them to stop the movement of these people because frankly, you just, the idea of flattening the curve in these countries, there's not as much useful to say for it. There's not as much advantage in trying to do it because you'll be ineffective. And the downside for you economically in terms of, I mean, just even being able to live, being able to get food, it's not worth it. I mean, we, we may go back and argue in five and 10 years time, that India shouldn't have shut down their economy at all. That any lockdown ended up killing more people. Mm -hmm. It's possible. I mean, certainly I could go back to 9-11 and I could say that the trillions of dollars that we spent in response to 9-11 uh, probably ended up leading to a lot more people dying than if we had spent that money on all sorts of other things um, that could have actually made a difference to welfare on the ground. And yes, there might have been a few more terrorist acts in the United States, but if we really want to look at the well-being of the American people, which would have mattered more long term. But if you're fighting a war, you can't make that argument. If you're fighting a war, you got to fight the war. That's where the resources have to go. And right now we're fighting a war against an invisible uh, terrorist called coronavirus, and we're going to overwhelm the resources towards that. So finally, when you look back at this, when you, when you look at back at it in five or 10 years, do you think that you're going to look back at this moment, at this pandemic, as something that fundamentally changed the world? Or it, it was a blip on the horizon, it happened, but it didn't really change the order of how things are. Uh, again, change the world, uh, I, I would focus more on dramatically sped up trends that were already happening. Th this is going to be a turning point. Yes, no question in my mind. This is definitional in the lives of an entire generation of people. Um, it will change the way they think. It is uh, much bigger than either 9-11 or 2008. 
Um, and especially for young people that have never really experienced true hardship, uh, I think this is going to be transformative for them. When you say it'll change how they think, what does that mean? Uh, change their orientation for what a government can and can't do, should and shouldn't do, I all see. sorts of issues like that. Ian Bremmer is the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. We'll have more on our website about some of the trends that we've talked about during this hour, from the stresses that COVID-19 has put on the European Union to its potential impact on inequality in America. That's at innovationhub.org. And we want to know how you see global dynamic shifting. Email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.